I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we are reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking to Rebecca Traster, the author of Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Hi, Kendra. I'm so excited to have this interview. Yes, this has been in the works uh, probably about two years now. Probably. <laughs> uh, Rebecca Traster won our very first Reading Women Award for nonfiction for her book, All the Single Ladies, uh, which we loved. And so we're super excited to get our hands on this one. Definitely. And so Good and Mad is, I would say, just as good, if not better, than All the Single Ladies. And it was really great to hear her talk about how this book relates to her previous book and how she kind of navigated writing it while events were happening that she was writing about. Yeah, and she said she wrote this book in four months, which is just incredible. I mean, just this book has so much beautiful content, excellent research, as always. And I was just like, wild, like speechless on the interview. Like, I can't believe you wrote this, the first draft of this, at least in that sort of time. That's just phenomenal. Definitely. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Rebecca Traster's work, she is a writer at large for New York Magazine. She's also a contributing editor at Elle. Um, she's written for just about everybody, though. Um, <laughs> the New Republic, Salon, The New York Observer, The Times, The Post, Vogue, Glamour, Marie Claire. So she's her writing is everywhere. And if you find it, I highly recommend you read anything that her byline is on. Yes, and we'll have some of her more recent articles linked in the show notes, but we are always sending the latest Rebecca Traster articles back and forth to each other because we just get so excited when you see her name on anything because we're like, oh, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> right, exactly. So Rebecca Traster writes from a very feminist perspective. She writes on politics and current events from that perspective and uh, is always commenting on that side of things. So obviously she's like the center of our wheelhouse. So we're very excited to share this interview we have with her with you all. So we hope you enjoy her work as much as we do. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Rebecca. We greatly appreciate it. It's so nice to finally be able to chat with you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. We both read your book, All the Single Ladies, a couple years ago when it first came out and actually picked it as our first ever nonfiction winner for the Reading Women Award. So we're huge fans of your work and we're really excited to read your new book as well. I am so happy to be here and so happy to be talking to you. So you, like I just said, like, so your last book was about unmarried women and, you know, the subtitles unmarried women and the rise of an independent nation. And then your new book, Good and Mad, is all about women's rage. Um, could you tell us a little bit about about how perhaps maybe the work in your first book led to this new book? Well, I think in part, a lot of the history that I learned um, from my last book, which I didn't intend to be, you know, I think just discussed this before, I didn't intend my last book about unmarried women to be a book about women's history or American history. Um, I intended it to be a work about contemporary marriage patterns and how more women than ever before were either not marrying or marrying much later. Um, and it was only when I started work on that book that I began to realize that there was this huge history of women having lived outside of the institution of marriage and that so many of those women had been instrumental to social and political movements that had transformed the nation. And so I had to sort of pause in the middle of writing that last book and do years worth of research into history that I'd never been taught. 
And so to some extent, um, it certainly shaped this book because reading that history, much of which, as I said, had been new to me um, or that I'd never really read about at length, never really thought about the dynamics involved or the history or the, or the crucial and catalytic figures, but their stories had remained with me. And when I realized that I wanted to write a book about women's anchor, I had that history in my head and understood as soon as I started to think about it from that angle, that anchor had been um, such a powerful force um, with the women in whose, whose history I'd only recently become acquainted with. And I had that history sort of at my fingertips and in my head as I was thinking, as I was living through the 2016 election um, and watching the eruption of sort of mass rage in the wake of the election of Donald Trump, I sort of had history in my head and understood that anchor had been so important to all of these stories that I that I learned about, but had never really been highlighted, um, had never really been looked squarely at and, and acknowledged as catalytic. And so, yes, I think that that, I, I think that the two books are very, very closely linked, even though the writing process for both of them was so different. The, the, all the single ladies took five years and this book, um, you know, I researched for some months, but then wound up writing extremely quickly in four months. Man, it, four months sounds like I mean, it is such a short amount of time, but this book, every good and mad, every chapter is has so much content and so much well thought out ideas and, and research. And uh, but I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, for our listeners who haven't read your latest book, Good and Mad, yet, uh, would you like to tell them a little bit about what it's about? Yeah, it's basically looking at women's anger as politically consequential, and it is looking at the, the book is about women who are angry in this particular political moment, um, the sort of post 2016 wave of women who've become newly minted activists and candidates, um, who've engaged in the hashtag me too movement or in, um, you know, some of the labor organizing that's happening, some of the protests, um, that, for example, helped help to forestall the, the repeal of Obamacare in the spring of 2017, the activism and protest that took the shape of the Women's March in both 2017 and then again in 2018. It's, it's a look at that contemporary anger, but also um, trying to make the argument that women's anger, while very rarely highlighted, has been um, instrumental in the formation of lots of progressive uh, political movements from abolition and suffrage through the labor movement and the civil rights, the women's movement of the 1970s, the, the gay rights movement of the 1960s and 70s, and uh, but also taking a look at women's anger at, at each other, with anger within a progressive and feminist coalition about racism and white supremacy um, that has created unjust hierarchies within women's movements in all their iterations. And also looking at the way that, that political anger isn't felt and expressed by women isn't always progressive, is sometimes reactionary, is anger often deployed usually by white women on behalf of white patriarchal power structures. You know, looking a little bit at Phyllis Schlafly and the, the white women who voted in many cases out of anger um, for Donald Trump in, in 2016. So it's basically trying to understand women's anger as a politically consequential and often catalytic and potent force that is widely under-recognized and under-acknowledged. And that's something that I loved about your book is that uh, you talk about how women are so important to different political movements, like you said. And one of the things that you feature 
uh, heavily in your book is how that black women historically have been at the forefront of so many political movements, but they rarely seem to get the credit that they deserve. Uh, can you talk a bit, a little about that and why it's so important for us as white women to listen to black women's leadership and other minorities and different communities? Yeah. So if you, if you're somebody who's engaged in progressive activism or the, the thing to understand is that women of color and specifically black women have been at the forefront of the work organizing, the sort of intellectual breakthroughs, the, the ideological breakthroughs of, of nearly every iteration of every progressive movement. I mean, women of color have um, been the driving force um, of, of activist, progressive activist movements throughout this country's history. And uh, also the base of the Democratic Party, not only as voters, but as pavement pounders and organizers and activists and doing the actual labor of getting people um, elected. And yet they very rarely um, had their perspectives, experiences, and, and priorities made central to Democratic political platform. Black women have been grotesquely underrepresented within even the Democratic Party that they have worked to support and empower um, ever since they've been fully enfranchised. And within activist organizations, black women have often done the groundbreaking work, the laid down the legal argument, you know, filed the cases, done the door knocking, organized the protests only to have their work usurped or appropriated or blotted out by white women who have more racial and economic and social power to draw media attention and because of their greater proximity to white male power have had the abilities to kind of grab the microphone and reshape activist mo movements when they when they become involved often very late to reframe and reshape and become the heads of or the symbolic faces of activist movements that in fact have been carved out, shaped, and driven by the, the labor and energy of African-American women. I really appreciated your discussion, especially in relation to this, of the Women's March, because when it was when I was reading the articles as it was being covered, it was so hard for me personally at the time to kind of parse out like what's true and what's not true. So I really appreciated your take on that. But also like your discussion about Rosa Parks and how she wasn't just this bystander, but she was actually an activist. I really found that really exciting, too, because like I, and kind of sad in the sense that I'd never heard that part of the story before. And it's just sad how these stories kind of get swept under the rug in favor of like white women's stories. Well, I don't think it's even that they're necessarily swept under the rug. I think it's that um, there's an active investment in not focusing on what's disruptive or angry or chaotic mm -hmm. about the stories of women who are our heroes. So, for example, I was taught that Rosa Parks was catalytic to a civil rights movement. There's no question that Rosa Parks was a name that I was taught from the time I was a young person. But the parts about her that were angry, the fact that she was a lifelong organizer and um, that she was driven by a fury at racial inequality and, and racist sexual violence. She worked as an investigator for the NAACP, investigating the gang rapes of black women by white men in the Jim Crow South and investigating the often false um, claims of assault made by white women against black men that when she sat on the bus and refused to give up her seat in 1955, it was a political act that she was an organizer. She knew just what she was doing. None of those things were fed to me. What was fed to me was that she was ex exhausted and stoic and that she was a seamstress. I never learned about her political work. And that's on purpose. You know, there are, there are other instances of 
women, including white women who've been written out of history, the young women at the Lowell Mills who were, who were white women who staged some of the first walkouts and formed one of the first unions in this country's history. Um, and their story is rarely told as fundamental. The, the immigrant women who went on in the early 20th century to lead some of the major strikes in New York City as, as the labor movement progressed, the great uprising of, of 1909 was, was called for by a woman named Clara Lemlich, a young immigrant woman, and 20,000 shirtwaist manufacturers went out on strike and forced new bargains for higher wages and better working conditions with the majority of the shirtwaist manufacturers in New York City. The stories of women who were just furious at ill treatment and inequality are just written. They're, both the women are written out and the, and their anger are, are written out. And that's part of the history that this, I mean, it, it, the book is a very rudimentary attempt to sort of reclaim some of that. You know, in the book, you give so many great examples of women who are angry at the injustice that they're seeing, and they want to make a difference. And so their anger moves them to activism. And I think we've definitely seen that in our own midterm elections here in the United States. More women uh, were elected to office than any other midterm election in history. And women's anger had a huge part to play in that. So while we have you here, do you have any thoughts on midterm elections and how women's anger has uh, caused this kind of wave of women to be elected into office? Well, anger is what anger is at at a bad political outcome or um, inequality that has been. Um, just made visible to you for the first time, even though it's probably <laughs> the inequality has been there for a long time. But of course, there's a lot of work um, in this country to paper over inequality and say that it's something that's been corrected and that you know we've fixed our biases. And when something happens that makes a, a mass number of people really that exposes those inequalities to a mass number of people, the anger at having at, at getting a good view of that that injustice is what motivates a lot of people off the couch, out their doors. That's tremendously powerful. And we just saw it be very powerful and that it, it was part of the fury at the outcome of the 2016 election is part of what drove a historic number of women, a historic number of women of color um, to run for the first time as candidates. And not only that drove millions of other people, especially women to in, to become civically educated about their state and local races, about policies that they hadn't paid a lot of attention to, about politics in a way that they hadn't been paying much attention to previously. And a lot of those women wound up participating in the work of getting these new candidates elected. So you saw the end, and a lot of their participation um, was jump-started by their fury at the result of the 2016 election. And so anger was a provocative, catalytic force in getting us to the election results in, in November of 2018. You know, I think that's so true. And actually, I live in Atlanta, and we just had our governor's race where Stacey Abrams ran. And I had several friends who helped with the campaign and who went door to door and who were a lot more involved in this election than they were in previous elections since I've been here just because they were so angry and their the their frustration with with what was going on in the government motivated them to become more involved and even when my sister asked how I felt about the election I said I'm so angry which was my first response and even at that like I there was part of me that felt guilty for telling her that I was angry but it was true I I was really frustrated with that. But one of the things you talk a lot about in your book is how anger is perceived in our culture. 
specifically how anger is portrayed as something that makes women ugly or something that is bad for women's health. And one of the examples you gave for that is a situation where at one of Roxane Gay's book readings, she is asked by someone in the audience how not to be angry. And you explain Roxane Gay's response to that. And so my question is, what are some things that women can do to get over the guilt that often accompanies admitting that they're angry or being angry? Well, my book is less about urging women to express themselves differently and more about urging them to listen to the anger of other women, the women around them. Um, and so that's more of what I would, I, I don't, I don't want to offer any advice for how, you know, women can express their anger differently or get over their anxieties about it because it's really true that there are, there are punishments out there for expressing anger. And I can't pretend that that's not the case and just tell people to go out and rage. Um, you know, women of color, if they get pulled over for no reason and are perfectly with like every valid reason to be livid, if they get angry at their arresting officer, you know, they're at risk of being arrested or shot for it. Women who are angry about mistreatment at work and go in and rage about it are at risk of, you know, getting bad reputations, not getting a raise, not getting a promotion, getting fired. There, I can't pretend that we live in a world that's going to welcome the expression of women's anger. We need to change the system in that world before we can start doling out advice about how individual women can express themselves. And so to that end, my prescription, and it's not a prescriptive book, it's much more of a descriptive book, mm-hmm. but to the degree that there is anything prescriptive here, it is about urging women to listen more, be more curious and take more seriously the anger of the women around them, to listen for the people who society would tell us to write off as crazy or belligerent or, you know, difficult or threatening and disruptive, and instead say, wait, what is she angry about? And treat the anger of the women around them as instructive, as maybe pointing us toward things that are broken and worth being angry about and in need of fixing. Listening to women is such an important topic, and I appreciate how you handle it in your book, how you note that listening is an active process. You're not passively sitting around just taking things in. Instead, you're actively listening to the women around you, especially women of privileged backgrounds needing to listen to women of minority backgrounds and having a more well-rounded view of things. Women need to listen to other women. But in regards to the political systems that we have in place, when we see women's anger, we often, as a listener, have a negative response because women aren't, quote unquote, supposed to have these kind of angry outbursts, uh, but they do. Why do you think we have these different views of anger when it's expressed by men and women? And what can we do to change the systems in place? Or what challenges do we have to change those systems so that we can better listen to women I think there's a model for that. I think that there is a way in which we're used to seeing the political anger of men, white men being taken seriously. We're used to seeing, you know, the anger of a white working class uh, taken seriously politically. We know that candidates are chided correctly for not having paid enough attention to it, for not having, you know, Hillary didn't pay enough attention to the white working class because we understand that the things that they're angry about and we're told by, by political storytellers that the things that those 
white Americans, many of them white men, are angry about are instructive. Their anger is instructive. It tells us that there's unemployment and opioid addiction. And we treat that anger as diagnostic. And I think that the task in front of us is to treat all kinds. That's not incorrect. That is right. The anger of white men, you know, in a, in a white working class tells us a lot about unemployment and the changing technology and the way that it's ravaging certain careers. The challenge in front of us is to treat all kinds of anger as diagnostic in a similar way to say, okay, these activists, Black Lives Matter activists, what are they angry about? And politicians need to take their anger seriously. What are these, what are these young people on the left angry about? Politics needs to take this seriously. What are, and basically, um, to treat all anger with the, as if it is as consequential as the anger of white men. So I watched the testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. It's the first hearing like that that I've ever watched on TV. And that was the one thing, what you're talking about right now, is the one thing that I thought when I was reading your book, how they each performed their anger. And then reading the criticism afterwards and the articles afterwards, I was just shocked by how he was praised for what he did and then she was not, you know, or how those were, were portrayed. In your book, you talk about Hillary Clinton and her campaign and as well and how she wasn't allowed to perform her anger in the same way. And it made, I couldn't help but wonder, like, how perhaps that hearing would have turned out differently if she had been allowed to perform her anger the way he was allowed to perform it. Right. But we did see an example of anger being voice that was very powerful in the wake of those hearings. And those were the mm-hmm. two women, Anna Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher, in the elevator the next day. You are absolutely right. There was this incredible gap. It's not just about whether who was allowed to be angry. It was that Kavanaugh was permitted to use his anger as, as a weapon on his own behalf. Mm-hmm. He could use it as a rhetorical tool. And it, of course, it would have backfired on Christine Blasey Ford. Had she been angry, it would have undermined her point. She would have been heard as hysterical and irrational and, and you know, she couldn't be trusted because she was so emotional. But white, powerful white men who are presumed to be rational from the start, their anger can amplify their voices um, and confirm whatever it is they're angry about as fundamentally rational. And I think you know, and so Kavanaugh not only was allowed to be angry on his own behalf, he could use his anger as, on his own behalf to strengthen his position. And that is another, that's an, you know, that's another key thing. But it's important that both of them were aiming to impress powerful white men who were the, the ones who determined what was going to happen. The, the Republican uh, members of the Senate Judiciary who happened to all happen to all be white and all be male. You know, those were the people who they needed to convince. But the women in the elevator the next day, yes, they were speaking to a senator in particular, Jeff Flake, but that clip gained, gained its power in part because the anger that they gave voice to as their voices shook and they pointed fingers and they, you know, they, they were so angry that, you know, one of them cried. That spoke to millions of women who didn't have the power on the Judiciary Committee, but in fact had been feeling powerless around the country and around the world as they saw the treatment of Christine Blasey Ford. Mm-hmm. And the two, and Anna Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher, part of the reason that their anger was so powerful is because it communicated the fury that millions of women were feeling around the world who were feeling like they didn't have any power to even raise their voice. So that's a different kind of communicative power, but we did see it. 
you mentioned that one of the women in the elevator was angry and so she cried. And when you talked about in the book about how there was this one instance where you were at work and you were so angry that you cried and someone took you aside and said, they don't, un- men, the men don't understand that you're angry. They just think you're sad and they view it as weakness. And whenever I cry because I'm angry, I get so frustrated because I know the men around me, or if there are men around me, they don't understand that it is anger. It's just the system, I guess, that we're working in. But I had never really heard anyone address the topic of tears and women's anger together before. And I found that section of your book just so informative. I think that one of the things that is widely misunderstood is that often when women cry, when it's and, and, and the question I write in the book about the question of why women cry when they're angry, is it because they understand that somehow tears are going to go over better? Or is it because they're so angry that that they're also, I mean, often anger and sadness are coupled. Um, Often anger at injustice is coupled with sadness and injustice or or fear. But we are conditioned, we things, especially for white women who are viewed more easily as traditionally feminine and vulnerable, tears can be better embraced by those around us than if we raise our voices. And there are all kinds of studies that I write about in the book that have shown, for example, that in domestic violence cases, if women cry on the stand, their accusers are likely to get longer sentences than if they yell on the stand. The yelling makes the women less believable or less likable or less, you know, have less value. So whatever ways we've absorbed this, it is true that many, many women, when they're very angry and, and understand on some perhaps unconscious level that screaming would end poorly for them, would result in censure or being taken less seriously. Often many of us cry, but those tears are misunderstood. They're understood to be about vulnerability or suffering. And in fact, they're often about red hot anger. Mm -hmm. Brittany Cooper talks about that in her book, Eloquent Rage, and she even has a chapter called White Lady Tears in which she discusses how white women are like you said, seen as more traditionally feminine or, or weaker and how when they cry, it has a certain effect on men and and how white women's tears can be manipulative. Because white women, because white women have been taught that they can provoke protection from powerful white men in part by crying, white women's tears have often, and because white women are more likely to be regarded as traditionally comfortably feminine by a white patriarchal culture that defines its traditional femininity as being inherently white and inherently vulnerable, white women's tears can be used to manipulate the reactions of white men. And there's a long history of white women's tears. And in fact, their accusations very often false of sexual violence committed by black men being used to justify racial violence against those black men by White men. I mean, this is the story of Emmett Till to some degree. The the, the woman who claimed that Emmett Till harassed her it was a false claim um, that he whistled at her, and it was a false claim that she later acknowledged was false. But it provoked in her white husband and his another white man the murder of a fourteen year old young black boy. You know, and that was the form. And it's it's ironic in that case the woman who accused Emmett Till, her husband, who was one of Emmett Till's murderers beat her as well. Um, she was beaten by her husband and yet a form of protection that she felt she could, that she could provoke in this husband who badly, violently mistreated her was by essentially, I don't, 
may not have been literal tears by, but by making the claim that she had been wronged by a young boy. This is, there's a huge pattern and long, terrible history of this, of white women's tears being used to draw sympathy to the white woman and produce uh, feelings of sympathy or protection from powerful white men at the expense of non-white people involved in the situation, either the blotting out of their own experience or um, accusations made against them. Well, these are such important topics, and I know that we could all talk about this for the rest of the afternoon, but we don't have time for that right now. But before we let you go, we wanted to ask, we like to ask all the guests we have on our podcast, who are some of the female authors that they like to recommend to others? Well, my top recommendation for this, as far as recent books, um, there are two that were published the same year that, that I published Good and Mad that are on the same topic or a related topic. Um, one is we already have talked about Brittany Cooper, who is, his book is it, actually whose scholarly work. She's a, she is a women's studies professor at Rutgers and her book beyond respectability is remarkable. That's an academic book. Her book, eloquent rage, which was published, um, earlier in 2018. And it's about her discovery of black feminist anger as a superpower is, is incandescently great. It is so good. I, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, and so I, I cannot possibly recommend enough Brittany Cooper, whose, um, whose work has been so formative for me. Um, also Soraya Chamali wrote a book called rage becomes her. Um, it was published just a few weeks before mine and, and it takes some slightly more um, psychology-based approach. She's looking at some of the inner... She also looks at politics and the way that anger plays out politically. But where my book is really about anger is politically consequential. She's looking at the, some of the interpersonal dynamics and the messages that are sent to women about why and how their anger is inappropriate. And I think actually that, that these books work all, very well together. Um, so Soraya Chamali and Brittany Cooper are the, the first two people that I think of. Uh, I can tell you that I'm right now so belatedly, this is a terrible um, confession because this book came out a long time ago and everybody and their grandmother has probably told you how great it is, but I'm reading Tyree Jones's American Marriage um, that I just think, I mean, is is remarkable. Um, also, after finishing writing my book, I read The Power by Naomi Alderman, um, and which was a mind-bending book. Um, that's sort of what I've been reading recently. That sounds amazing. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, a lot of those are our favorites as well. So definitely co-sign. Um, so the last question we have for you, is there anything that you're working on now? I know you also do articles as well. Anything that you've recently published that you'd like to share or anything you'd like to share with our listeners? I write all the time for New York Magazine and The Cut. And so I have been writing about, you know, my book stopped this summer. You know, I, I published my book this summer. And so it doesn't include, for example, um, it does, well, it, this conversation has included analysis about the midterms and about the Kavanaugh hearings. My book doesn't cover those subjects because it was finished before those took place. But I write about that all the time as a journalist at New York Magazine and The Cut. And so you can read what I have to say about all these topics, about what happened in the midterms and what happened during the Kavanaugh hearings and what is going to happen moving forward at NewYorkMag.com. And we'll be sure to link to some of your recent articles in our show notes so our listeners can go find those really easily and just continue reading on this topic because it's so contemporary. I feel like we're talking about something and then it'll be outdated like next week. <laughs> because Yeah, things are happening very quickly. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming and talking to us about Good and Mad. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you. I appreciate it, too. It was so good to talk to Rebecca Trace. They're finally just, uh, it, was, it was great to be able to talk to her about her latest books. And she's just so smart. Yeah, she was such a joy to get to talk to. And I'm sure we could have had a much longer conversation with her. And we really only skimmed the surface of what her book talks about. So if you liked what you heard, go and pick up a copy of the book because there is so much more that she talks about that we just weren't able to fit into this episode. And definitely check out the books that she recommended as well. Those will also be linked in the show notes and you won't want to miss those. I recently got Rage Becomes Her in the mail and that is definitely next up on my TBR. So thank you to Rebecca Traster for talking to us about Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. It is out now by Simon & Schuster. You can find out more about Rebecca and her work on her website, RebeccaTraster.com, and on Twitter at rtraster. Definitely follow her on Twitter. Um, As for us, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at TheReadingWomen. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. You can also find us at readingwomenpodcast.com for episodes, interviews, and more. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Storybound is a podcast where acclaimed writers read their essays and stories, which are then scored by unique and award-winning composers with each episode hosted by myself, Jude Brewer. With Storybound, you'll find a whole array of genres and musical styles, some painful yet sweet, or hilarious yet tragic, all brought to you by the Podglomerate and Lit Hub Radio. Hi, I'm So Pandep. Hi, I'm Megan Angelo. This is Tommy Orange. This is Amanda Stern. This is Phil Cly. Hello, this is Stephanie Dandler. My name is Chloe Caldwell, and you're listening to Storybound. Storybound. This is Storybound. 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 This is the Storybound Podcast. Season 2 will be arriving on July 14th, with new episodes every Tuesday, featuring writers like Stephanie Dandler, Garth Greenwell, Tommy Orange, Chloe Caldwell, and more. Make sure to subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, because the next best thing to hearing a great story is having someone to share it with.